Hi, you're listening to your Route to Wellbeing podcast. This podcast shares strategies, insights, nuggets, and tools to inspire and support you as you step boldly towards creating the well-being that you desire and deserve. Each week, I share insights and inspiration from different people who have expertise across one or more of the 11 domains of well-being. Each one of the guests that I've chosen to talk to have found the clues through their lives and experiences, through their careers and their knowledge, that I want you to have access to. My big question is how can we all pulse with energy and truly live while we're alive? I believe that these people that I'm talking to have some of the crucial answers. So relax, listen up, and thank you for tuning in. Please remember to leave us a review and also to share this podcast with anyone in your network who you think it may help. Good morning. I am Sue Fullergood from the Energy Incubator and your podcast, your route map to well-being. I'm here with Bev Ruiz this morning, which is a complete treat for me because I have the utmost and deepest respect for Bev. I just see her as a world expert in ultrasonography. And you may wonder why I would have invited Bev to come and talk to us today uh, on a podcast about well-being. But I think Bev has got eyes that can see inside the body through her ultrasound machine and her ability to read the scans that she takes. And so I wanted to download what she's learned after an illustrious career, treating and scanning um, everybody from the man in the street all the way through to top athletes. And I just wanted to see what has she discovered and what can she share with us that can help us understand our own bodies better, first of all, and second of all, understand what the effects of exercise are on the body and what the effects of not exercising are on the body. So welcome, Bev. It is just a treat and uh, thank you for being here on this Friday morning. I'd love to ask you to just take the microphone for a moment and introduce yourself to everybody. Tell us a little bit about your career and who you are and how you came to be an ultrasonographer. Well, good morning, Sue, and good morning, everybody. And it's a great pleasure to be able to chat to you. Um, I started my imaging career many years ago um, in the early 70s. Um, as a radiographer in those days, ultrasound really wasn't around much. And after several years of doing routine work, I moved into uh, CAT scanning. And from there, I went into uh, neuroradiology in, at Hrytuskia Hospital. After some years of that, I decided I needed a change. And so I moved up to Johannesburg, also in the CAT scanning area, doing a lot of training and teaching. Um, I was lucky enough to travel around the world in the process. And from there, ultrasound was becoming more and more of a modality which was being used in wider and wider fields. And initially it was, people think of ultrasound as um, obstetrics, but it today has such a wide field of application apart from abdominal, cardiac, vascular work. And as the quality of the image improved, we were able to see finer and finer structures. So it became applicable to um, the superficial soft tissues, so muscles, tendons, ligaments, injuries, and that in itself has an enormous application for sports medicine. So ultrasound is very much an integral part of sports medicine, which is where my interest lies. And um, I've been scanning sports injuries now for close to 30 years. Um, I've done quite a bit of sport myself. So it's been wonderful for me to be able to combine my professional career with my love of sport. So um, I'm working based mainly at the Center for Sports Medicine and Orthopedic in Rosebank in Johannesburg, but I have done uh, sessions with other radiology practices, locums, um, and done quite a bit of teaching and training around the country. So as I say, I really consider myself very fortunate that I've been able to do something that I'm passionate about and something that is close to my own interest in sport. So there's a brief roundup, Sue. 
Thank you, Bev. And uh, Bev is very um, humble. I must tell you that in any medical circle, if if you need an ultrasound scan, the name that comes up is Bev. And uh, if you've had, I've had quite a few scans done by Bev. And if you ever show a scan to a doctor and it's been done by Bev, then it's it's elevated to have much much more. Uh, punch and impact because they know that what Bev has been able to see is what's really there. So with all that ability and insight and experience and knowledge, Bev, and all the scans that you've done over the years, what have you learned about your body and other people's bodies from all that scanning? Well, I think there are two components to this very much. You cannot separate the mind from the body. And the body may be somewhat predictable, but the mind can be completely unpredictable. Going into long distance events, um, Ironman, triathlon, et cetera, et cetera, has taken me to places that I never for a moment thought that I would be able to attain. It's been a wonderful journey of understanding not only my body but more especially my mind because if you are really tired but you're in a competition and you your body is telling you I want to sit down I want to rest I want to rest your mind has to be strong enough to propel you through that stage of physical tiredness you've got to have the mental energy to be able to do that and the sense of achievement once you've pushed through that barrier the sense of achievement in seeing that finish line and crossing it is something that is emotionally and psychologically so powerful it is such a wonderful drug if i can call it that that the desire to go back and get that feeling again pushes you to carry on to train for the next race, for the next race. So it's been very much a journey of the mind and the body. And when the body gets injured, the mind has to be strong enough to accept the injury um, and to say this is not a career, well, hopefully it wouldn't be a career ending injury and to work with the injury, to work with your clinicians, to be positive. Because once again, the more positive the mind, the better the body heals. So as I say, it, it, in my mind, you can't separate the two when it comes to, particularly when it comes to sport. Oh, well, I love that. Uh, you can't separate the two in any form, I don't think. Um, They're just inextricably linked to each other. Um, yeah, so, um, Bev, tell us a little bit about your sporting career, because you've alluded to all the incredibly long-distance endurance events that you've taken part in, but how did you get into all that? Well, um, I came up to... I, I was divorced when I was 28, and I had no kids, so um, I was free to do what I wanted to do, which is one of the reasons I moved to Johannesburg to um, go into new areas, new fields. And the people I was working with when I came up were runners. And I used to play wing on um, in the hockey team. So I was comfortable running. So I got into running with my mates and it became very much a social part of my day as well. And, um, and then my running friends, Canoe triathlon was coming on in those days. All triathlon was canoe. Um, and they were buying uh, canoes and bicycles. So I thought, well, if they can buy canoes and bicycles, so can I. So then I morphed into canoe triathlon. And I must say, I, I, I love the outdoors and I love being on the water. The canoeing is really probably my favorite because I just love being outdoors and water and trees and green and birds and all that sort of thing. So very much um, a good um, emotional and mental space for me to be on the water. Um, and then um, I thought, well, there's a canoe. I'm doing all three. I might as well do a race. And so my very first race was a mini triathlon, which was a four kilometer canoe, um, a 20 kilometer cycle and a five kilometer run. And I was so nervous. I was sitting in my boat at the start and the gun went off and I got such a fright I fell in. Um, and then I retrieved myself and thought, well, I've got my mind around that. I've had my swim and then settled down and concentrated on making up the time I'd lost. And from there, I went to onto the bicycle and from there onto the run. Now, I hadn't done many bike run changeovers. And it's if you're not used to it, you feel as if somebody 
when you start running, you've, they've taken your quads away. Uh, you mm. just feel like jelly. So that was another bit of a setback. But once I saw the finish line and I was so chuffed because I thought I'm going to finish my first proper race, albeit a mini race, my first proper race. And then your mind starts getting the upper hand and saying, well, if you can do a half triathlon, you can do a full triathlon. And if you can do a full triathlon, you can do an ultra. And if you can do an ultra, you can do Ironman. And so my mind was pushing me. And I remember one of my good canoeing mates saying to me, when I said I wanted to do Ironman, they said, you have to be really hungry for this race. You've got to be psychologically hungry for this race if you want to finish and I have never forgotten that and when I was pushing through right towards the end I thought I, I know what Frank meant when he said you've got to be hungry for this race because your body is crying to sit down and you just say no and but again when I crossed that finish line it was such a euphoric feeling and then um, one says well you know, was that a fluke? So you've got to go back and do it again, just to prove that the first one wasn't a fluke. And then in those days, if you did Ironman three times, you've got a permanent number. And once you've got your permanent number, you've got to do it again so you can compete in your permanent number. It's per pointless having a permanent number if you're not going to compete in it. So that was how I took my, my journey through. I, I did four um, and I did my last one when I was 43. And um, after that, I did shorter, I continued doing shorter distances, but I didn't do that so many ultras. As you get a bit older, you get a bit slower, you, um, yeah, so it's, a, but it's been a wonderful, wonderful journey. And I'm still running and cycling and paddling, but not at the speed, unfortunately, that I used to be able to uh, go through. So that's how I got into it. And then, of course, when you are in ultra distance stuff, you get injured. And you need to sort out your own injuries. And at that stage, my the the, the image quality in for ultrasound was good enough to look at the superficial tissues. So the two came together as a perfect my my sport and the my ultrasound and the region I love. So yeah, that's a, a brief synopsis of my journey. Thank you for sharing that with us. And. Uh... Yeah, having done quite a lot of ultra events myself, I, I know that feeling that the bottom of the barrel is so much lower than you think it is. You've got so much more grit available to you than you immediately know. So to be able to push through is a euphoric feeling. And I do agree with you, it can become a drug. But what have you learned um, between the two aspects, your own sport and your um, ultrasonography, what have you learned about the body and its adaptive capacity and um, yeah, about the inside of your body? Because I'm sure it's easier for you to um, work with your injuries, but also work with strengthening your body and um, training your body, given that you understand what it looks like on the inside. Can you share with that, that with us? <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. Yes, absolutely. And being able to look at my own injuries whenever I want to is also um, quite interesting. And sometimes I would look at um, either myself or an athlete and you look at a tendon or um, a ligament or a muscle and it really doesn't look normal. But if it's still functional and pain-free, and that's what I say to the patients, even if it doesn't structurally look normal, it's important that it is functional and pain-free. Um, so you don't have to have a perfect um, example of, of anatomy in order to be able to compete and to achieve what you want to achieve. If one does get injured, I think the most important thing is to get your mind around the injury and first of all, get an accurate diagnosis. You cannot manage an injury if you do not understand the full extent of the injury and having got an accurate diagnosis and be that not necessarily, you may not necessarily need imaging to get an accurate diagnosis. You get some really good clinicians who can, who can go spot on to what the problem is. And when I do um, scan patients, particularly the professional athletes, I will share with them on the screen and explain to them what I see because for those people, they really want to know, they want to know what is their timeout, 
how soon can they get back? And for example, muscle injuries that we scan on a serial basis until we can see that the muscle is virtually healed. We don't want to send them back too soon because that they'll just get re-injured. We don't want to keep them out for too long because that impacts on their earning capacity and also can impact hugely on team morale. I mean, look what happened with Malcolm Marks in the World Cup. We still won it, but it was a big blow to lose Malcolm. So it, it's important to try and gauge very accurately the healing time of that injury. Now, that is uh, does differ obviously from person to person. There's general health, which will, if your general health is good, your healing will be better. Um, if your diet is good, um, your general health will be good. Your healing will be quicker. And also some people have better collagen than others because tendons and ligaments are made of collagen. And some people are just born with a better collagen gene than others. So there will be a variation in healing time. And I think that is also very much the skill of the clinician, such as yourself, to know that if this is a, such and such an injury, it should heal within, it should start showing improvement within, within a given period of time. Um, if it doesn't show that improvement, then you need to offload, you need to back off on the loading to give that particular body a little bit more time. Um, and then there are also, of course, people are born with, for example, a flat foot deformity. And um, I was listening to Paolo Ferrar the other day, and he was saying, you know, there's a big difference between an acquired flat foot deformity in older life and people who are, which needs to be corrected, um, and people who are born with a flat foot. And his example was, look at the East African runners. A lot of them are flat footed. And they would look at it and say, this foot should not be able to run but they run magnificently. And he said, in those instances, you don't touch it. You just leave it be. The patient was born with it. They have, they, they can work with it. So there are enormous differences between um, the, what you're born with. Some people are born with, a, say, with a flat foot. Some people are born with a very high arch. And that in itself has an outworking on how well you can compete and if you when you do pick up the injury then of course the skill of the um of the clinician comes in and if you're not going to listen to what the clinician says well then don't bother going to go and see them it's pointless going to get a diagnosis um getting somebody give you a management program and then ignoring it and i remember dr ferguson always said that the success of any surgical procedure can be divided exactly into thirds the first third is the skill of the surgeon. The second third is the skill of the rehabbing clinicians. And the third third is the compliance of the patient. If the patient is not going to be compliant with good clinicians, then you, you're not going to get a perfect outcome. So um, it's, it, it's very much understanding <clears throat> what one's own limitations may be and that your clinician understands what the limitations may be and combining that to get the optimal output. Um, I hope that answers more or less. That's great. And, and I want to just um, tease out a few things that you've said there. One is the incredible healing capacity of the body. Everybody's body is a healing machine. Some people's bodies heal faster and better than others, but everybody's body is made to heal. So I think um, I'd love you to talk a little bit more about that. And, and the other thing that I want to talk about a little bit more is um, the adaptive capacity of the body, which you touched on in terms of the, the feet of the East African runners. You know, it, it, what we think um, is required for running is, is actually not because the body is such an adaptive machine and it has capacity to adapt. So can we start with the healing part, Bev? Um, talk to us a little bit about the innate healing capacity of the body and, and what you've seen about that with all your scanning? Well, I think, <clears throat> sorry, um, it's that, as you say, that healing capacity is there for everyone. And I, which I mentioned a little bit earlier as well, that it is general good health is so important. And so the better your diet, the better your, um, some people are born with a better oxygen carrying capacity than others. Um, but the, the better your diet, the healthier your body generally, 
the better your healing capacity is going to be. And <clears throat> um, there are all sorts of things that uh, people are looking into diet now, for example, in um, the treatment of um, bipolar disease, because it's um, something which we don't really understand what goes wrong with these, um, if I can just call them, um, mental syndromes but as more and more work is being done with diet and there's a psychiatrist called chris palmer who's just brought out a book called brain energy which is absolutely fascinating and in order to um, maintain good healing you have to look at diet i think it's where so much of it starts and ends with diet and as we all know um the in in many countries, this country and the States as well, um, a poor diet is the precursor of things like diabetes, hypertension, cardiac disease, um, and a host of other things which could be prevented if not with drugs, not with giving them drugs, but with just getting the patient onto a better diet. And it's all the refined carbohydrates, um, huge amounts of sugar, all of that sort of thing, which prevent the body from attaining its optimal healing capacity because there's too much, there's, there's insulin spikes. The insulin is so busy running around trying to control too much sugar that the insulin doesn't do what it should do in cleaning out plaques in the brain, for example. So if, to me, it can all be related back to a healthy diet will give you optimal healing um, of all the cells in your body. And it also improves the mental side of it, because if you're feeling well, um, you can go out and do more, you achieve more. And that in itself, because you are full of energy, because you've got a good diet, you can go out and do more. And that in itself, nothing succeeds like success. The more you do, the more you realize you're capable of doing, the more the, the, the mind will improve as the body improves. Again, it, it's so, in, so interlinked, so interlinked. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I'm just, I suppose I'm just lucky in that I really enjoy sport. I know there are people out there who don't enjoy sport, but um, I'm just lucky that I do. But the two are so linked um, that it's, as I say, impossible to separate. And it is an upward spiral, isn't it? Once you feel good, you do good. And the more you do good, the more you feel good and up you go instead of going down. And if you find yourself going down, it is possible to reverse the spiral just by taking the action usually of, of, of moving a bit. And as yes. soon as you move, I mean, exercise is, an, um, is a, um, a critical habit because when you eat, when you exercise well, you tend to eat well, sleep well, feel better yeah. and, and so on. So, um, yeah, I, I, you know, so many people think about diet with respect to weight. And, um, yeah, I love to say that weight is lost on the fork and, and not with exercise because a lot of people exercise to lose weight and they, um, and they forget the importance of, you know, using their diet for health. And, uh, and trying to build their health as opposed to worrying about their weight and allowing their weight to sort itself out because they're doing everything else right, so to speak. Can you talk a little bit about that? You would know from your own body and, um, and also from the many, many athletes uh, that you've encountered in your career. Well, yeah, I think there are, are two things which come to mind specifically. And one of them, and I think it was Tim Noakes who said, you cannot outrun a bad diet number one. So if some people think that because they're exercising, they can eat all sorts of junk food. Well, that's, that'll come back to bite you eventually. Um, so you cannot outrun a bad diet. And then the other one, which I love is let medicine be thy food and food be thy medicine. With a good diet, you don't have to take drugs or I, I'm, I'm talking generally, obviously there are certain conditions which do necessitate them, but you don't have to, your, your life is not ruled by six pills in the morning and six pills in the evening if you can get back to the basics and um i remember i worked for a long time with a wonderful physician called dr will davis and he 
would say to the patients before they came to see him, they had to go and have a slew of blood tests so that when they came in, he knew exactly what he was dealing with as far as the biochemistry of the body was concerned. And um, he was, he, he used to take, he would take the patients off the drugs. He would slowly take them off the drugs. And he would say, first of all, magnesium is so important because you can't build energy if you don't have magnesium. Um, it's difficult to get magnesium in this country because the general level of magnesium in the soil is low. So we cannot eat enough. So for example, a supplement such as a good magnesium supplement will help to build energy. Um, and the other thing I remember so clearly about uh, Dr. Davis, a friend of mine ended up seeing him because she was having major problems with depression. And her husband said, you know, she she's won't even get out of bed in the morning. She's so depressed. And so she came to see um, Dr. Davis and he took a good history as all clinicians must do. And he came to me and he said, this woman is on a lethal combination of drugs. She'd been to see a pulmonologist. She'd been to see a gynecologist. She'd been to see, I don't know who else. But he said to me, she is on a lethal combination of drugs. And he said to me in Afrikaans, hala astota okis, hala vietni And he slowly took her off all of these drugs. And six months later, she was running a business. It Drugs are, and I say, I'm not saying that, you can stop taking all of your drugs by any means. That would be foolish. But I do think there is overprescription. I do think there's overprescription, which I don't think is good for any of us. And I do agree with you so um, completely that let's start with our diet. And and if we're eating well, and I'm going to add in there sleeping well, then um, you know the, the body can do an awful lot for itself. And um, yeah, if we can trust that. Um, so tell us a little bit about what a body looks like. Oh, no, hang on. I had another question uh, that I asked you just now uh, in terms of the adaptability of the body. And then we'll come back to the, the next question. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm so excited about all this information. Tell us about adaptability, Bev. Well, um, I think we all have to accept that there are limits as to what we can do because of what we were born with. Um, not everybody has um, a VO2 max, which is your oxygen carrying capacity of a Bruce Fordyce or a Rob D. Castello or whatever. So, but within the, the average person has a, a, a VO2 max of about 50, 55, but it's possible to overachieve that with the correct training and with the correct desire. It's also possible to underachieve it. So it's, um, very much a journey of pushing yourself to find out how adaptable your body is. And then um, I, you can either um, train specifically for that sort of activity or sometimes understanding that your body can do better than you thought it could can lead you into another avenue of sport or whatever it might be. So and again, the, it, it comes back to a good training program as well. And to be able to understand how to load that you don't load into an injury. And that again varies from person to person. So it's, um, again, you need to have a good clinician who is going to help you with that. But it's you can adapt yourself to so many different things that we don't always realize, but by pushing the boundaries um, from time to time, you start to learn that I can do this and I can, oh, I can't, I, I can't go further than this. This I need to, this I need to stop here. So um, again, very much experiment, um, have your mind and your body work together and, um, it's amazing how we can adapt to various different activities, various different loads and various different pro professional careers because that's also adaptability and being pushed out of your comfort zone. It's all, we get into a comfort zone and it's all very nice and one thing and another, but in order to grow, you have to get out of that comfort zone. You have to push yourself. You have to find how you can adapt physically and mentally. And so 
it's um i'm at a stage in my career now where um i my interest now is doing more teaching and every time you teach you learn more because I'm not going to ever go back and do Iron Man again. I know that I, I, I can't adapt. And at this stage, I cannot adapt to that level. But there are so many other things that you can carry on doing still within the region that gives you a lot of pleasure. So it's mental and physical adaptability, but being able to accept, I cannot do this anymore. I'm just not strong enough. I don't have the muscle mass. I don't have and, you know, with age, we all lose muscle mass. But that's, again, why it's so important to keep exercising, to maintain the adaptability that you can as you get older, because otherwise you get weaker when you may not need to have got that weak. So exercise, exercise, diet, diet. Thank you for that. Um, uh, yeah, I must say that uh, we, we use the words window of tolerance, so always trying to stay within your window of tolerance. But I love what you've said about pushing yourself because I think sometimes we, we want to be comfortable and the mind wants to be comfortable, the ego wants to be comfortable. So um, to take something that you never thought you could do and, and start trying it and seeing if it's fun for you, explore it and experiment with it. Um, you know, whether it's tango dancing or salsa dancing or yoga or Pilates or running or whatever it is for you, find something that's fun for you and that's a little bit of a challenge and go there and, and push a little bit and see what happens and explore, explore the edges, explore your boundaries. So I love that. Um, it, it, Bev, because you just so obviously love exercise and you're so obviously happy to stretch yourself. Um, but it is sort of, for some people, a new box. They just didn't think about that because they feel like they should stay comfortable. And it's such a balancing act between staying comfortable and pushing yourself too hard and, and finding that, uh, that sweet spot. Um, everybody knows that having just written a book about the sweet spot, that's my absolute passion is where is that magical place where it's not too much and it's not too little. So I was, the next question I was going to ask you was, was what happens when you don't exercise? What does it look like under ultrasound scan um, when uh, you, somebody has not been exercising? Well, there's, it, it's quite a dramatic difference. If, for example, you scan um the thigh of an athlete and you scan the thigh of a non-athlete you see that in inverse proportions where the athlete has a really nice well-defined muscle structure um and you can see every fiber and there's a thin little rim of subcutaneous fat around it and with the with a non-athlete of course it's it's the other way around if you don't use something you lose it so with uh, with, with a lack of exercise the muscle structure that I see on the screen becomes less well-defined. It's not as clear. It's um, brighter in color. And in, in ultrasound, if something is very fatty, it has a bright color on the screen. And if you don't use a muscle, you get fatty infiltration into that muscle, which is the reason the muscle fibers are no longer so clearly seen, and that the general overall shade of gray gets brighter because of a fatty infiltration. So it's um, very easy to see a muscle that hasn't been used. And a typical thing that we always look for is um, if we're looking at the rotator cuff and the commonest uh, tendon to get injured within the within their five tendons in the rotator cuff. I know not everybody here is medical and used to talking that, um, but there are five tendons that form the rotator shoulder. Yeah. So a lot of people say to me, "What is?" A lot of people say, "What is the rotator cuff?" It's not a rotator cuff; it's a rotator cuff, but it rotates your shoulder. So it moves um, backwards, forwards, turns your arm in, turns your arm out, lifts your arm up above your head so the commonest tendon to get injured is the one that lifts your arm up above your head and that's why people will say I, I'm, I'm fine if I don't go above my shoulder but I can't I can't load anything above my shoulder so when that tendon tears completely that muscle cannot work that's why you can't lift your arm up without pain because the muscle is no longer properly attached and as such the muscle can't work 
So it increases in echogenicity. And this, unfortunately, for in a in a in a tendon that's been torn for a long time, um, they can preclude surgery to fix it because the muscle has become so weakened and so infiltrated with fatty tissue by the fact that it hasn't been used, it hasn't been loaded because it's been torn for a long time. Sometimes that precludes the possibility of having the surgery to fix it because they can try and, uh, and, and reattach the tendon to the bone, but that repair will fail because the muscle hasn't been used for so long. It just cannot take that load all of a sudden. So it it, it is very important to maintain that muscle strength for as long as possible because as I say, there are certain injuries which after a period of time cannot be fixed. It, it's you know, it's no good going back and saying after six months, oh, well, I think I'll have this torn biceps fixed. <clears throat> Sorry. They're going to say, we can't fix it any, any longer. It, we've tried in the past. We know it's going to fail. So it's pointless starting on a surgical procedure when you know that it's got a 99% chance of failing. So again, if you don't use it, you're going to lose it. Mm -hmm. So tendons, muscles, everything becomes softer and weaker and less um, resilient and, and less good quality, so to speak, if you don't exercise, yeah. use them and, and, as you call it, load them. Um, so um, it, a lot of people m might sit and say, well, I've got a lot of pain and it hurts me and therefore it's better for me not to move. Um, and I'm forever saying movement is magic and motion is lotion. So just get up and take a, a few steps, do what you can do. And, um, and, you know, slowly build it up, slowly stretch that window of tolerance. So what would you say about somebody who has had a lot of pain, maybe even has chronic pain, chronic back pain, uh, chronic knee pain, maybe even some arthritic changes, um, and therefore feels that it's better for them to sit on the couch rather than than exercise and move uh, uh, how would you recommend people who are suffering like that could get started again i think it comes back to having an accurate diagnosis or trying to define the cause of the pain because that gives you an indication as to maybe how how much it can be improved and how much it can't be improved i know that there are obviously certain um injuries which spinal injuries, that sort of thing, where the damage is irreversible. So I'm not necessarily talking about that level of injury. Um, I'm talking about understanding exactly what has gone wrong and then getting the knowledge to know how to work around it so that you will start being able to move more freely. Now, I'll take an example. My husband had two back operations. Um, one of them they were both squash injuries, but one of them was when he was 33. It should never have been done, but there was some gung-ho guy who said, oh, no, we need to do a laminectomy. Um, and he said to him, but you'll never play squash again, But which he, my husband did for another 17 or 18 years, whatever it was. And then he started getting the severe back pain again. Um, he went for a second op because one of the nerves was trapped. Um, and then he was absolutely fine. And then the back pain came back again. And I thought, oh, here comes the spinal fusion, which I was not keen on at all. And I said to him, please just go and see one of the good back physios, please. So he went to see um, a colleague um, and she looked at him and she said, well, your sacroiliac joints are all out of line. I'm not surprised you've got pain and your core is so weak. You need Pilates. You go and see um, Tony. So that was 20 years ago. He has no back pain now. He can lift things that other people will say to him. You know, people 10 years younger say, oh, please, can you lift this? I've got a bad back. And he says, sure. But that came from First of all, understanding, and then secondly, work, and he was diligent. And I know not everybody is as diligent as he is. I am not as diligent as he is when I have an injury. But it just shows what can be done, that it was that weak core that was creating that pain because he didn't have any strength supporting those vertebrae. And so things were moving, things were getting trapped. Pilates, and he said to me, he went for 
two sessions a week of Pilates. And after six weeks, after having this back pain for so long, he came back and he said, I don't even want to say it, but I have been pain free the whole day. And of course, nothing succeeds like success. So he's still going to the same wonderful Pilates teacher. He's rock solid. He has no pain. Um, and I started going to her as well. I've been going to her for years now as well, um, because I just feel it's so important. We develop such bad habits that we create pain in our bodies simply by sitting incorrectly, by standing incorrectly. Um, I have problems because of the way I sit at work, but that's something that I understand now why I can get a cramp in my side because it's the way I sit. So I try and correct it. So it, th there is so much that you can do to improve the level of pain. So given that you understand the cause of the pain. Mm. And as I said, um, my husband is a, is a classic example of when I thought, Oh, you know, this is incredible. He couldn't walk for more than about 50 meters without lying down, saying I've got so much pain. And this is the guy now who runs, he's playing paddle, he, you know, all the rest of it. So yeah, it's, you've got to start, again, it comes down to knowledge. It comes down to understanding the extent of the injury and then the, the, the skill of the clinicians who that you go to. And unfortunately, as we all know, some people are better than others about doing things. But if you find the right person who can teach you, I mean, for example, just balance standing on one leg. If you stand on one leg and you lift up the other leg, it's normal for us to think about the limb that's moving. It's your That's your gesture leg. But that limb, when it's that leg when it's lifted off the ground is not helping you balance at all all your thoughts should be on the leg that you're standing on how are you standing on it have you got your weight over that leg have you engaged the glute have you engaged your quad don't worry about the leg that's not on the ground because it's not helping you stable to 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 remain stable so things it's a technique it's getting up off the floor without using your hands that's a technique i can do it easily now but uh I, I had to be taught how to do it. I had to taught how to think about what to put where, and then it's easy. So it's uh, pain is often self-induced. We develop bad habits, and that's where it comes down to understanding more about movement. And any clinician who understands a lot about movement and how the body works will be able to look at you and say, why are you standing like that? And I, I find myself doing it as well. And I've, somebody walked past us. I don't know where we were the other day. And I said, wow, look at oh, down on the beach. There was a woman um, walking on the beach barefoot. She had such a, an acquired flat foot. I could see by the way she was walking. And I said to her, you know, that's the worst thing she can be doing is walking barefoot on sand that's giving because she's just going to overload that area. But she doesn't even realize. She probably has pain, but she does, probably doesn't know why. So um, it's many, pain is very often just bad technique, bad habits, which we all um, pick up. And when you think about the way children can roll around the floor and get up without, you know, without using their hands and they can just roll over. And, but then you, um, end up sitting behind a school desk for 12 years and there you from right from there you start developing bad habits so yeah you need to understand the correct movement technique yeah you make good points there Bev. Uh, so i think what you're saying is investigate pain don't ignore it uh, but don't think that the only thing you can do about pain is to rest even if rest feels like what you want um, it might be a little bit of rest and some movement. We used to say wear and tear, and nowadays we say wear and repair. The more yes. you wear something, the more it repairs itself. Um, but as you say, don't ignore pain. Find out what's causing it. Uh, find out what you can do about it and start exploring and experimenting with, with what eases it. Um, yeah, so um, it, uh, we've talked a little bit about um, people who exercise successfully but get injured and how to get back after an injury. We've talked about people who don't exercise. Talk to us a little bit about people who, um, who love to go out every day and do the same thing and, um, and maybe are getting a little bit older. They run 
50 k's a week or 30 k's a week whatever it is or they walk whatever it is um how can what can you say to those people who are trying to exercise but um maybe are starting to feel the effects of their aging and are not feeling as able to carry on as they used to can you have you got some suggestions and and ideas for those people um i think well the the um important thing is to try well to find what it is that you enjoy i think that's step number one and as one of the physios always said you know the best exercise you can give a patient is the exercise that patient is going to do um it's pointless giving them something that they don't want to do so i think that's very important is to um find what you what you want to do now you may have been a long distance runner and obviously as you get older you can't do that um, and people do develop back issues or knee arthritis and all that sort of thing so it's then finding something for example I love to be outside I, I, I'm a real outside freak I don't do gyms and inside exercise and all that sort of thing um, but for example um, something like gardening which gives uh, you know it's, it's, it's great you you're out there, um, you're creating something, you're seeing things grow, but it's also got a lot of bending and stretching and working around, uh, you know, whether you're digging something or whatever it might be. So I think it's from, if you've always been a long distance runner and you can't run, um, then find something that really um, grabs you and then start experimenting with that but the, I so agree with you Sue you can't you can't not move you can't not move you you have to find a way around it and the best way to do that is to do something that really interests you or that you are akin to I mean I love wetlands and inland water and that sort of thing so um to go and even if it's just walking around um, uh, in the open air, walking on a walking trail, something like that, and being enjoying, enjoying the exercise. And it's again, finding that thing that really grabs you um, and to keep moving. Keep and not to just go from, okay, I can't run, therefore I'm going to sit on the couch and eat knickknacks, but rather, okay, I can't run anymore, or I can't run maybe as much as I used to, let me try walking or cycling or something else that's fun and and reduce you know know that the window of tolerance is now a little bit smaller but I've still got this whole window to work in I don't have to now do nothing and and I see so many people who go from a lovely wonderful sporting life and then suddenly do nothing um but I also enjoy what you've said about um you, you know we if we don't get on the floor we won't remember how to get off the floor and, and if we only limit ourselves to sitting in our cars, sitting in our desks, sitting at our dining room tables, and, and you know that's the limit of the amount of movement we offer our bodies, then we are going to lose our range of movement. So we do want to get on the floor, do some exercises there, you know, climb up a little bit, you know, get, get, use the range of movement that's available in your body, um, otherwise you'll lose it, as you said. So. Yeah. And so, Bev, I also wanted to ask you about tendon injuries. Um, a lot of people are suffering from tendon injuries, uh, especially with paddle. Uh, we're getting a lot of rotator cuff tendons, but we're also getting a lot of Achilles tendon injuries. Um, what can you tell us about tendons and uh, why are they so easy to injure and why are they so hard to fix when they are injured? Yeah, they certainly are hard to fix. Um, a tendon has a very poor blood supply. So when it gets injured, it doesn't heal quickly. Now, the converse of that is a muscle which has a very good blood supply. So if you tear a muscle, it bleeds a lot, but it fixes quickly. Because it's got a good blood supply, more nutrients, more oxygen are more easily delivered to that injury site. But because a tendon has a poor blood supply, and there are particular places, for example, um, the Achilles tendon, um, particularly just above the, the heel, uh, that, that mid-tendon area. So if that gets 
um, overloaded and injured, it takes a long time to heal because the blood supply is not good. So the deliverance of nutrients and oxygen to the area is poorer. So that's one of the reasons. The other thing is that people, when they when they get a sort when they injure a tendon and they go out and do paddle, um, so, oh my Achilles is really sore. Um, I'll rest it. But tendons don't heal with rest. Tendons need to be loaded. <coughs> Excuse me. Tendons need to be loaded, but they've got to be loaded in a very precise form. So, yeah, so many patients come in and say, "Well, I hurt my Achilles, and I've I've rested it for three weeks, and it's no better." And I say, "Well, you know, there's three weeks wasted. There's three weeks of potential healing time wasted because they just rested it." So, tendons are really tricky things to deal with, um, and the again the skill of the healing process comes down to the ability of the clinician to understand the loading process and to realize that people need different amounts of load now for example there's a wonderful professor of physiotherapy called jill cook and i'm sure everybody who is in the medical world will know jill she is the tendon boffin of the world and the way they treat their professional rugby players for example um, is when they load that achilles tendon they do it by giving the patient um, a, a weight across the shoulders. Um, so they are holding a, a, a bar with a weight on either side. And that weight then, and then they will do, for example, some um, eccentric loading. Um, they then do that for a given period of time. And then they increase the weight. They don't change the movement. They increase the weight that the patient is holding on their shoulders and that increases the load that the tendon has to take but it's increased in a very in a very scientific way now obviously not everybody has the ability to to go to those lengths of um you know if you're a professional athlete it's one thing if you're just an ordinary i like to go out and exercise kind of athlete that's another thing but it 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 is a question of loading the correct amount loading an injured tendon the correct amount in order to stimulate the healing because the healing is stimulated by load that tendon needs to feel those tendon cells need to feel a load they need to be um, aware that they are being asked to work but they cannot be asked to work too much that's why it's such a tendon healing is such a difficult thing because most people either don't do enough or do too much and overdo it it's that it's that middle now there's a um there in 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 the tendinopathies there are like three stages um and um the first one is what we call a reactive tendinopathy and when you load a tendon when you do go out and you play paddle for example you load it more than it's used to being loaded so the tendon says i'm being asked to do more so i've got more force going through me so if i make my area bigger I'm going to reduce the amount of force per square millimeter. That is why you find the tendon feels a bit stiff and sometimes it feels thicker. And that is a normal adaption to an increased load. That's, it, it makes perfect sense. If you increase the load and then you the tendon increases its circumference or it, 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 its cross-sectional area, it's going to reduce the load per square millimeter. So that is the body's way of adapting to an increased load. Um, if you don't give it time or continue at that load and you try and push the load more, then it's going to start, then you're going to start breaking down the collagen within those fibers. And then you get to um, what we call a, a disrepair tendinopathy. So the tendon, instead of getting stronger, is actually getting weaker because the collagen fibers are being interrupted or, or, or being broken down um, because the load was too much. So, and once it's been overloaded too much and those collagen fibers are really badly damaged, they then lose the ability to heal. So you can get a degenerative change in a tendon and you can never reverse that degeneration back to a disrepair, back to um, a more normal tendon. So once you've um, 
the reactive tendinopathy, the first stage, you can reverse. The second stage, the disrepair, you can reverse to some extent, mainly, mostly with the, with the correct thing. But once you get to degeneration of a tendon, it's very difficult to reverse it back up to a normally functional tendon. So that's why it's a complex uh, process of loading, offloading, doing too much, not doing enough. But that's the reason that the tendons are such tricky beasts to deal with. And I think uh, you're, you're just talking about uh, you know, this finding this sweet spot between doing too much and doing too little at all times. And I, I, I like to say, you know, ex ex be experimental and curious all the time because maybe do too much today, dial it back for a day or two and let your body heal again and then push again the next day. So don't just keep bashing on because you your training program said you had to do you know 40ks this week or whatever it is listen to your body and respond to what it's saying um and adjust your training program or your what you hope to do so that you can get that sweet spot of not too much and not too little and i think the bottom line is don't injure your tendons <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all um, we all end up pushing too too far, too hard, too fast, and we learn the hard way. Um, and it's been um, interesting for me to um, begin to understand, um, because I was exercising a lot before I got into the musculoskeletal ultrasound, and I obviously had tendon injuries, et cetera, et cetera. And it was when I was getting into learning about the different tendinopathies, what's actually happening, it suddenly all made sense to me. Oh, yeah, no, that's why. That's why that particular tendon took so long to heal, because I didn't understand what needed to be done in order to allow it to heal. Um, and that's, again, knowledge. It, it comes back to the basic knowledge. But um, having said that, um, too much, too soon, et cetera, et cetera, um, obviously, when you do a lot of long-distance stuff, you do end up with things that maybe you wouldn't have got otherwise maybe some arthritis in the knee maybe um arthritis in the elbow whatever it might be um but if anyone were to say to me would you avoid having these injuries now or these conditions now um and if if you could go back and do it again would you do it again? Or would you, knowing what you know, say, I'm not going to do that long distance stuff because I know it's affected my knee? And I would say, never. I would do it again. I would do it again over and over and over because the, the um, positive take home from the exercise, the achievement, the camaraderie, the social life, the, it is such a wonderful aid to well being mental and physical, that I am quite happy to deal with the arthritis in my knee that I have at the moment, because it was worth getting it doing what I did. I would never not have done it, even knowing that I would end up with injuries or with conditions, arthritis. Yeah. Well, and the truth is there's no guarantee that you got the arthritis because of the exercise you did. You know, maybe you were going to get it anyway. So, because I know lots of people who've done no exercise and they've got arthritis in their knees. So, um, we don't know that. But uh, as you say, Bev, there's just so many benefits. And those, you've mentioned the benefits to the mind, but they're equal benefits to the body. I mean, you haven't got, I'm sure, high blood pressure and high cholesterol and high blood glucose and, 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 and. So, you've got so many other benefits. Um, I've got one last question, and um, I'd love you to just very quickly tell us a little bit about how muscles age and what happens uh, if we don't do strength training as we're aging. I know you've talked about fatty infiltration of muscles that are not being used, but can you just talk a little bit about the aging process in the muscles and the mitochondria of the muscles? Um, well, I... Yeah, um... So it, it, I, I, to be honest, I don't know the intricate details of the, the, I know the mitochondria are absolutely important. I mean, they are the power um, houses of the, of the cells of the muscles. And I don't know the exact process that they go through as we 
um, as we age. But I know that the, for example, the the telomeres and the muscle get shorter. Um, but to be honest, I'm I, I don't have a good idea about the physical structure of that degenerative change of the muscle. It's something I need to go and um, look up a little bit more. So I'm I, I would rather not go on on that. Um, because I, I don't think I know enough about understanding exactly what is happening to the muscle. I know that there's fatty infiltration. I know that the telomeres shorten. I know that the oxygen carrying capacity decreases, but the exact mechanism of how all that happens, I, I don't know. No worries, Bev. But what I was really wanting you to to, to share with us is, is um, when we're older and we go and do some strength training, can that fatty infiltration um, and you know the fact that, and I'll tell you this part that I do know that the mitochondria, which are the lungs of the muscle, um, actually diminish in in number and in quality as we age, unless we exercise. And so I want to know from you if you can share with us how reversible do you think these muscle changes are? How you know how do, or do you think that we can keep our muscle quality? Um, as good or somewhat good if we if we continue to do strength training as we age. Um, unfortunately, the you will lose um, X percent of muscle as we age per year. Um, you once you've lost that, you cannot reverse it. But by exercising and load and strength training, you can maintain what you've got. Um, so that the next year you don't lose it, you can maintain it. But if you once you've lost it, you cannot go back and regain what you've lost. It's a question of maintaining the exercise, maintaining um, strength training um, and, and, and resistance work in order to maintain what you've got. Otherwise, it you lose it exponentially over the years as you get older. So that's the important. It's maintaining what you've got. But once you've lost it, you cannot regain it. That's why it's so important to keep exercising. So that's really what I wanted you to um, highlight for us and, and share with us. So consistency is really king. And uh, if you haven't been exercising, today's the day. Go and keep what you've got. Um, but if you um, can, just and you're younger, keep going. Consistency is king. Just keep on exercising year in and year out. Um, month in and month out because that's what's going to keep your body healthy is that what you're saying yeah very much so very much so and and again to what you said doing different exercises doing or not not necessarily exercise, but different movements you know instead of just bending down to pick something up off the floor well maybe you should go down on one knee to pick it up off the floor and then practice standing up again so it's bringing movements that you are not habitually used to doing into your routine of daily life because that keeps your muscles stronger it keeps you more flexible um and it's quite fun to do something i i i often do that i see something oh, i need to stretch or i need to do that and then again it's understanding the movement so if you're going to stretch to get something out what is the first thing you need to do you need to think well engage your core so um and then if you're going to go on one leg figure out which leg it is you're going to stand on and make sure that those muscles are nicely engaged so that when you reach for that book on a shelf or you reach to get something um, at the top of a cupboard or something like that, that you are you're thinking about what you're doing. You're not thinking about what you're getting. You're thinking about how am I going to get that thing? How am I going to maintain my balance and you know try and then once you've got that idea then you can try different ways of doing it so it's moving moving all the time trying different things um lie down on the floor and roll around just see how it feels um and that will in itself keeps the body more flexible and it, it's you know it's interesting it's interesting to find out what you can and can't do sometimes it comes as a bit of a shock as to what you can't do and then you need to start working on that yeah. Yeah, so it's being playful, isn't it? And and using your activities of daily living. I mean, I often say to people, you know, stand on one leg and put your shoes and socks on. Mm. Don't sit down and do it. Stand, balance. Um, even if you fall over, who cares? You know, get back yeah. up again, do it again. Yeah. And so. it, it's again, it's 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 technique. So much of it is technique. And once you know the technique, a whole lot of movements that you didn't think you'd be able to do become much easier. Yeah, yeah. 
Dave, have you got a last nugget for the listeners? Um, exercise, diet, and that will keep the body and the mind healthy. I think that that that's the most most important thing. And you know, enjoy being the oh the other thing is I think which is very important, which we tend not to do because we're either looking at a at, at a computer or a cell phone. Is you need distance vision. It's really good for your eyes to change from near field to far field. Go out there when you're walking around. Don't just look at the road road ahead of you or the trail ahead of you. Look up. Look at the trees. Look at that movement of your eyes. Distance distance vision which so many of us just don't do because we busy looking as i say looking at a computer looking at a cell phone looking at the road in front of us when we're driving but and i'm not saying you must look around when you're driving by any means but when you are going out for a walk don't just look at the ground in front of you put your head up look around turn use your neck movement 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 and it, it's also good for your eye muscles when you get older they keep working Absolutely. I love that. And also your own innate balance system works if you don't always rely on your eyes to balance you and keep you stable. So, Bev, thank you so much for all this insight, all this wisdom, all this inspiration, frankly. Um, you are quite amazing the way you've kept your body in such amazing health and well-being. And uh, I really feel inspired by you. So thank you for sharing with us. Thank you for being here this morning. And uh, just thank you for all that you've shared. Everybody, please take heed of Bev's words and move, 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 and eat well and take care of your beautiful self. Thank you, Bev. Have a wonderful thank day. Thank you, Sue. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Your Route to Wellbeing. I hope that this episode has been really useful and helpful for you. Thank you to the team who brought it into being and to our special guests who so generously gave of their time and their insights. Please remember to share it with all in your network who you think it can help. Sharing help that really helps is what makes the world go round.